Medicare for all. It's a term we're hearing frequently. But what does it really mean? In short, there are a number of proposed policies that offer various interpretations. Hello and welcome to Dynamics High Five Podcast, our take on specific healthcare industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm Mindy McGrath, and I'm joined by my colleagues, co-hosts, and fellow healthcare industry enthusiasts, Ryan Hummel. Hello, everybody. And Mike Catone. Hey, guys. So in today's episode, we're chatting about Medicare for All, and it's just in time for the kickoff to primary season. We'll provide you with insight into the various proposals and their potential impacts. And stay tuned for our parting thought. It's that thing that we've either read, heard, or seen that we'd recommend to you. So how was everybody this morning? Excellent. Doing great. Good. You ready to dive into this topic? Yeah, this is one of those topics that we could spend days on. Yes, yeah. but we will not. <laughs> not even multiple episodes. <laughs> correct, correct. So Medicare, uh, guys, has generally been viewed very favorably since its inception in 1965 as part of President Johnson's Great Society Plan to eliminate poverty. Um, the Medicare program, as you know, affects almost 60 million Americans with more and more aging into the program over the next decade. So before we dive into trying to make sense of Medicare for All um, and those proposals that are now floating out there in the marketplace, I want to ask you just for some thoughts on the Medicare program in general in its current state. Well, yeah. Uh, thanks, Mindy. Uh, Mike and Mindy, I think two things come to mind for me anyway. One is kind of that the modularity of Medicare and the evolution of that, because it looks a little bit like alphabet soup, to use a, a Mindy quote there, with all of the many parts that provide coverage. You know, we go part A, which covers the hospitalization uh, portion, part B, which covers a lot of the medical services and the physician-administered drugs, and then there's part C and D that are more outsourced to health plans. And I think it speaks really, as I mentioned, to the evolution that we've continued to add on and, and build out this Medicare service over the last, geez, 50, 55 years. And the second piece of this, and you, you mentioned it a little bit um, at the beginning, is kind of the, the, the product and what folks think of it. And it's a good product. And the high number of Medicare beneficiaries are really pleased. You know, Gallup poll has it at something like 9 out of 10 folks that have Medicare uh, like the product and like the quality of Medicare. Um, and this also tends to be part of the population that, that has some political capital. They vote, right? And they tend to be active in voting, midterms, presidential elections, and they're sensitive to changes. And they're also protective. Yes. I mean, you said they're pleased, but I also think that, that studies suggest that, that people that are currently, beneficiaries currently in Medicare, are extremely protective of the benefits that they receive today. Yeah. And not, you know, so we'll talk a little bit about how that impacts the policies that are floating around. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind just the the size and scale of Medicare. It's the largest consolidated payer in the country, and together with the Medicaid program, that really represents the government foray into the payer side of healthcare. And the program's familiarity really acts as a great anchor uh, for what we're seeing as as we get into the Democratic primary season, and we hear a lot of rallying around the Medicare program as either expansion for all or a foundation to expand it to additional ages and populations, um, and really kind of providing the foundation for a single-payer universal care model under the banner of Medicare for All, sort of in its, in its most extensive version. Yeah, so let's dive in and try to make sense then of the term Medicare for All, because um, 
it, it gained popularity back in 2016, right, with Bernie Sanders, who who used that term and used it as a banner. And um, we are now hearing it rise up again as we head into the 2020 election season, um, which is really right around the corner if you think about it. Um, and there are many, many Democratic candidates that are in the race, and there is no shortage of ideas out there on how candidates may reform our health care system. What I have been struck by in reading all of the proposals that have been floated out there under some variation of this banner of Medicare for All is um, just how different they really seem. Uh, so I'm curious, Ryan, I know you've read them. Um, Mike, I know you've read them as well. What intrigues you about what you've seen with the, the variation of the proposals that have been introduced? Well, I think... Um I'm going to get, I think, into a little bit about the proposals in a minute. But what intrigues me the most is kind of the narrative. You mentioned Bernie Sanders in 2016. I don't know if I would have predicted the fact that he is he's kind of driven this narrative. And now we're entering into the political, the 2020 presidential race. And the fact that he was able to bring this up in 2016, and it's now a platform that out of the, I don't know, 20 Democratic candidates that are running for president, they're all in some way, shape or form signed on or have has latched on to Medicare for all. So it's really interesting how we've changed <laughs> our our speak and what we talk about, because I don't think I would have seen that happening three or four years ago. But there are a variety of takes amongst the proposals, as you mentioned already. And when you take a step back and kind of look at the proposals as a whole, the core of the proposals are, are similar, right? Mm -hmm. They aim to attack and expand coverage um, offered by insurance. And we're talking about dental vision, some of those tertiary and secondary pieces, hearing, hospital visits, doctor's visits, and uh, women's rights and maternity uh, visits as well. I think it's helpful to bucket these proposals, and, and we're going to try to do this um, as succinctly as possible, into three, three buckets. The buy-in public option piece, Medicare for America, and then the Medicare for all. And then it's important to note that within those three buckets, there's actually options within those. Um, the first one I mentioned, the buy-in public option model, is has some has several proposals in itself, but it incorporates a Medicare or Medica Medicaid buy-in for Americans. Um, two senators, uh, Jeff Merkley from Oregon and Chris Murphy from Con uh, Connecticut, two opposite ends of the country, right, authored the Choose Medicare Act, and that would give employers the opportunity to allow their workers to buy into this Medicare. This plan covers 80% of healthcare costs. Um, we're talking like the gold plans in the ACA mm -hmm. um, and would introduce out-of-pocket caps for the population that are 65 and older. And then there's yet another buy-in plan um, authored by Senator Whitehouse and Representative Chukowski. It's called the Choice Act, and it allows small employers, which you know is a real kind of polarizing group in itself, mm -hmm. and uh, using small employers who use the Affordable Care Act marketplaces to actually buy into Medicare instead. Fascinating. This plan covers between 60 and 80% of the healthcare costs. There's another version. Uh, it's, it's sort of a more restrictive version of the Choice Act. It's called Medicare X, and that's introduced by Senators Michael Bennett and Tim Kaine, uh, along with Representative Brian Higgins of the House. And they all have an employer component. Um, this Medicare X bill, you know, it, like I said, would be more restrictive than the Choice Act, and it would only initially you know, cover and allow small employers to gain access to Medicare buy-in if their market only had one insurer. So as opposed to letting all small businesses that are on the marketplace right now, um, they'd really want to take a look at those kind of 
monopoly markets where there's only one employer choice on the marketplace and then allow the the Medicare buy-in there. Um, this plan would sort of start with two tiers, one that covers 70% of healthcare costs and one that covers 80%. And there's an option to add two new tiers after the administration of the program begins, one covering 60% of cost and one covering 90% of cost. Um, these bills are they're interesting to me because employer-sponsored coverage um, remains intact. And we know that's sort of, to me, the, the sticking point, the biggest um, sort of bump in the road would be the transition from employer-sponsored coverage that the majority of Americans use today. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting to me, right, is just that um, y- you were throwing around different percentages, you were throwing around different tiers, Mike, and then we have Representative Debbie Stabenow, who um, really, just in the interest of simplicity, came out with a straightforward proposal that would allow Americans to start buying into Medicare at the age of 50. And one of the things that um, has popped up is that I think as these Medicare proposals or Medicare for all proposals have been introduced, is that not everyone agrees that actually Medicare is the right program to be buying into. Yeah, that's right. Senator Ben Schatz and Representative Ben Ray Luan have pitched a Medicaid buy-in that would allow states to set premiums uh, with a cap of 9.5% of a family's income. And the difference is that we're talking about a federal policy that's implemented by the states. And if you think about Medicaid as a program, it's intended to offer coverage to low-income individuals and families. This plan's really about providing the most affordable coverage, but that means giving up certain benefits and provider reimbursement has been so low in Medicaid that many providers do not accept Medicaid. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting going back to Debbie Stevenow's, you know, straightforward approach. I mean, it seems like simplicity should be the answer, you know. Right. There's many points of views here, but I, I just, you know, hearing ourselves talk about this, just <laughs> we, we, we know this stuff, right, a little mm-hmm. better than I'd say the every everyday Joe or Josephine. And I think that it's still confusing sometimes, yeah. right? And so the Medicare and Medicaid buy-in that you just mentioned, Mike, would provide for an insurance marketplace free from profit incentive. And these premiums would be paid by by beneficiaries or individuals totaling to the expected benefits paid out plus the cost of administration. A little bit of a European model, actually. And with all of these buy-in proposals, I think what's really important is framing them with a little more detail. I know we're getting into the detail, but framing them out will actually be critical for it to gain traction in the marketplace. Yeah, and I I think back to your point about... um literacy and understanding. I mean, so I'm going to go back just for a second and talk about what happened with the insurance marketplace when it was introduced, right? And and we had these different tiers of, of silver, bronze, silver, gold, platinum, and just the confusion around which one is best for me and and consumer self-selection. And so I think to your point, um, framing this up in a way that is going to be digestible for individuals, but not just be a soundbite, is going to be important, I think, for any of these to gain any sort of traction. Yeah. Yeah. Just a really quick personal story that I promise will be quick. I was working at a health system when these were rolled out, and I remember uh, we had to, we had assemblies for employees of the health system to understand these plans so that we could talk intelligently to them. And we were working in the healthcare system in an IDN in a in a hospital, mm-hmm. and you know it took us several, you know, swings at the ball before we understood these. So it just speaks to like the need for us to speak simplicity in, in simple terms for all of us to understand. Yeah. 
Yeah. So let's talk about the next um, bucket, Ryan, that you mentioned, which is the Medicare for America plan. This is the alternative to Medicare for all. Um, it would not move every American into a government health care plan over the next few years. I think what was curious to me about this plan or why I was curious about it is because it really, back to Mike's point, preserves that employer-based insurance model, yet it provides workers with an option of leaving their work plan and joining the new Medicare program. Um, so I'm curious, you know, in looking at this one, which is, is just an alternative view of the buy-in model, you know, Mike, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, so if you if you dive a little deeper, there are conditions for maintaining the employer-sponsored model in this bill, and to me, they read a lot like an expansion of the Affordable Care Act and the new the new um, stipulations that the Affordable Care Act uh, put onto health plans, like not uh, not disallowing coverage because of a pre-existing conditions, having a, a list of medical benefits that are required to be covered um, for each plan. So it's really, if employers want to continue offering um, insurance plans, it's really just continuing that progress and making sure that they're as comprehensive um, as they could be. And under the Medicare for America plan, the uninsured and individuals currently enrolled on marketplace plans would be moved into a into this public coverage option and newborns um, would automatically be enrolled into this new public coverage option under Medicare for America. So um, that to me is a transition period of about 22 years. Uh, if you think about from the time that they're born to when they would kind of reach you know, post-college working age, 18 to 22 years. So we'll, we'll talk, I think, a little bit about transition times um, for Medicare uh, for all uh, proposals a little bit later in the podcast. Um, but this one sort of has a, a transition time built into it. Uh, as opposed to kind of explicitly stated. Yeah, and for um, from what I understand, the Medicare for America plan at its kind of highest level seems digestible until you kind of talk about the grand idea that we're transitioning all Medicaid beneficiaries into it as well. So we're essentially eliminating, eliminating state-based healthcare programs, right? Um, and we haven't really talked about who pays. So under this plan that we're talking about, participants would be required to pay premiums, you know, on a sliding scale based on their income, people with lower incomes would pay no premium at all. Interesting, you know, very Medicaid-based model. Um, and out-of-pocket costs would also be based on income and capped at this point, I think, at $3,500 for an individual and 5000 for a family. So I think it's also important to know that physician reimbursement would be paid at Medicare rates uh, with Medicare for America and with an additional increase provided for primary care doctors and mental health services. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting to me, right, when we talk about this plan is that it seemed to be written and, and introduced with almost this purposeful intent of avoiding disruption of the employer-sponsored insurance model. And it clearly looks to be a compromise or like a meet in the middle versus the next plan that I wanted to touch on, and that is Medicare for All. And this is the plan that we talked about Bernie Sanders introducing during his first run um, way back in 2016, and one that he has continued to promote. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that plan. Because it's really to the, I mean, it's the extreme, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so under Medicare for All, every American would be covered by a government insurance plan phased in over a transition period, and that's proposed as two years in the House version of the bill authored by Prima Jayapal, and four years in the Senate uh, of the, the Senate version of the bill that's authored by Bernie Sanders. There weren't 
there wouldn't be any cost to enroll in either Medicare for All proposal, and there would be small capped expenses of around $200 a year for prescription drugs. There are no deductibles, no copayments, and no premiums. Okay, so this to me then begs the obvious, I think, next discussion point around cost and who pays. So for as much as we've heard about Medicare for all like proposals, I think there, you know, there are many out there who dislike the idea, one, of a government-run health plan. Um, and they raise the specter of cost being a main fail point in these policies. And, and what's so interesting to me, right, is that, that the art of scoring any of these proposals, should they ever make it onto the, the floor, right, is going to be how do you take consolidating all these different programs that currently exist, Medicaid, the, the marketplace exchanges, and is there efficiency and effectiveness in, in consolidating all of this? So that this becomes almost a self-funded vehicle. And I don't think we know yet, right? Because the devil's going to be in the details. And whichever one of these proposals gains traction, uh, it's going to be an interesting art and a science around really trying to figure out the economic model around this type of uh, proposed policy. Um, so I'm just interested when, when we talk about who pays and cost, uh, what stands out to you in the vague yet current thoughts on how these plans are going to be funded? And I use the term vague um, because I think that's exactly what we see right now is that there's been very little detail in a lot of these proposals around how you actually pay for this. Yeah, I think this is where we get into the topic. So we could sit and, and wax poetic about this for days. I think that you mentioned the word extreme when you mentioned Medicare for all. I'd actually say there's a little bit of a paradox. I don't I don't think a lot of folks in this next electorate think it's extreme. But folks like us who understand that, you know, it's gonna take some money to fund this, think of it as extreme. And from a cost standpoint, this this Medicare for all plan itself um, that's offered both in the House and Senate, Mike, that you mentioned, would need the most additional revenue by far. Due to, there's no premiums, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And for the Senate version itself, this would come from progressive taxation applied to the wealthiest earners in the country and increased it. A state tax implementing a new wealth tax. Um, you hear a lot of the word tax here on what I'm saying, right? So yeah. that in itself causes people to kind of back off a little bit and also imposing new fees on banks. The House version of Medicare for All does not have um, any of the financing plans released yet. Uh, Medicare for America would also undo the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2018, which we heard a lot about in the media. Of note, um, in the recent Gallup poll, it is it is something that's disapproved um, by Americans 50 to 40 versus mm -hmm. approved. So that may be an opportunity for this to get ta traction, um, kind of going after that tax and jobs cut and undoing it. But it would also raise taxes by 5% on incomes over 500000 increase payroll taxes, implement excise taxes on things like sugary drinks, alcohol, and tobacco, things we're seeing on the local front, but not necessarily on big macro federal settings. Right. And the buy-in plans, which was the first um, bucket that we talked about, would also um, wouldn't really need additional revenue because of the way that they are being modeled, right? There are premiums that would be attached to them. There's cost sharing that a beneficiary would have to pay into. Uh, so I, there probably will be some funding in them, but when you look at them right now, it looks like it is about allowing people to buy into programs that meet their needs based on their ability to pay. Yeah, and before we jump into the, kind of the impacts that we think this might have across the different sectors, 
one note on cost that I'm really interested um, to see how it's framed uh, during the primary and then even more importantly during the general election. Um, if you're going to raise taxes um, for everyone, and that's probably what a Medicare for All would have to do, would have to probably raise a, a payroll tax on employers and then raise an individual income tax. Um, I really am curious to see how that's framed and received, knowing that employees would no longer, number one, employees would no longer pay a share of premiums out of their paycheck. Mm -hmm. And number two, employers would no longer pay that premium share. Now that might be, that might go away in the wash if you increase a payroll tax, but I think there's a big difference between my taxes going up and $150 less coming out of my paycheck twice a month, or and my taxes going up, but I don't see any net impact because I'm not paying any premiums. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge that's a huge um, that's a huge intricacy that's going to be really it's really hard to thread that needle on a debate stage. So I'm very curious to see from a framing standpoint how that's messaged. Mm -hmm. Right, right, and you know on the other side of things. If we just think about the healthcare sector, right, we're going to jump into this in a little bit, but think about all of the different um, sectors and what their positions will be on this um, in terms of thinking about it from a reimbursement standpoint versus, okay, I have patients or members now that will have coverage. I mean, there there's a lot of intricacy on that side of things as well. Um, that So I think, you know, as we go forward into the primaries, the framing of this is not just to consumers. But it could be consumers who are providers, consumer, right? They they play multiple mm -hmm. roles in the healthcare setting. So um, that's a piece of it too that I think is going to be interesting. Uh, you know, it was I, I was reading through the plans um, and a couple of areas of impact that I think really I, I wonder about, and, and Mike, you just touched about it. it really center on things like um, how are consumers going to receive this? How are the healthcare sector? you know, sectors as they stand today, providers, plans, life sciences companies, public health organizations, how are they going to receive it? Because, I mean, you look at our industry, right? And and healthcare represents almost 19% of our economy. It's a huge job generator. It's a huge uh, moneymaker. And so, you know, when, when we think about Medicare for all, maybe what its longer-term implications could be, like, I'd love to dive in and just talk a little bit about consumers and like what is the potential impact when you consider these plans on consumers? Yeah, so from a consumer perspective, Medicare for all, I think, would have the biggest impact because it would impact every single American and would remove them from a private insurance plan after a transition period uh, and place them on government plan if they had insurance. If they're uninsured, they would have insurance all of a sudden. Um, Medicare for America would introduce new enrollees on day one with newborns automatically gaining coverage. Um, it would additionally put employees um, really onto the plan of employers who would who, who would choose to allow their employees uh, to enroll in these new plans. Um, and I would expect to see an initial bump in enrollment in a Medicare for America and in whatever that public insurance option is, followed by increases over time that depend on the success of the program. And I could see, you know, it would obviously grow, go up as the birth rate uh, continued to be positive. Um, and uh, I think as that pool of covered lives get bigger, um, they might be able to offer more enticing plans and products, might be, have more negotiating power at the table with life sciences companies um, and provider systems. And as that gets more, as, that, as those options get um, more desirable, I think we'd see an increase in enrollment. 
Uh, and the buy-in plans would increase consumer choice, um, but also likely require lots of public education uh, to help Americans understand what's available to them. And I think it's the same. I think it goes back to the same issue of if my employer is still you know, willing to pay part of my premium, does it really make sense for me to buy into Medicare? And maybe it would only really target people who are you know in that in that employment gap. They've left their career. They have a part-time job to pass the time. They're not quite eligible for Medicare yet. Maybe they retired early. Um, and so I'm really, you know, I, I think the buy-in plans would be interesting, but would require a big lift from an education standpoint. Yeah, it would. And, and what might also be interesting is like scenarios where you have individuals that are making maybe minimum wage or like hourly salary or hour, hourly payments where they can't afford maybe current market mm-hmm. options or they can't afford the cost sharing required by their employer if it's a high deductible health plan, right. but this might be an alternative option for them. So I think there's a bunch of different like use cases or scenarios uh, where the buy-in option or the buy-in plans could have some versatility to them. But back to your point, like education is going to be critically important if any mm-hmm. of these plans get legs. Yeah, and it's an interesting piece from a consumer perspective and, and the plan perspective and switching it back. We mentioned a little bit about the different industry sectors. You know, I think we've let out left out probably one of the <laughs> a key piece of this. And the sector that we feel, I, I think you would all agree, the largest impacted sector would definitely be the payer sector and health plans. Absolutely. Um, you know, it could go from ranging small changes from ranging from a new host of competition actually the complete elimination of the industry. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, you know, you mentioned 19% of the GDP. A lot of that comes from health plans. I mean, that's pretty jarring. Mm-hmm. It's a jarring phrase, right? right? And payers would, in this new plan, have to compete with non-profit motivated entities. And, you know, those entities right now don't have the high executive compensation that we speak of now. They're free of kind of that short-term mentality around shareholder oversight, which could and would likely drive costs down across the marketplace, the extent of which depending on the number of enrollees of the plan, right? So there's there's lots of different kind of layers of this as well. In the provider sector and life sciences sector, they would also see their purchaser landscape change. Mike, you mentioned more utilization um, as more opportunities exist, but it would actually kickstart many new negotiations around price, services, the payment model, all these things that kind of incorporate these new entities as players in the space. And gosh, from a financial industry perspective, the large mutual funds and index funds that are comprised of these holdings would really influence insurance company stocks as well. Yeah, I agree, Ryan. It, it's really not. It's really not just the healthcare industry. It really is a much larger and macro impact than just providing new ways for people to get insurance. What I would actually expect to see, uh, you talk about many large mutual funds and index funds have a lot of holdings in in payer stocks right now. So I would expect to see a negative market reaction uh, in the short term. And that would probably scale larger with the more radical of the proposal. I would say um, it's naive to think that the complete elimination of an industry would not have a negative, a negative impact uh, where people have invested a lot of money into that industry. Um, and you know, as you take profit motive off the table in parts of the industry, uh, there's the the ability to invest in those companies goes down. You, number one, they might not even continue to exist in their current form, but they would likely be less profitable with any of these plans. Um, and, but from a long term market effect standpoint, um, there you can think about additional spending money that people don't necessarily have saved away or banked up for healthcare expenses. Um, 
a reduction or hopefully complete elimination at some point of healthcare related bankruptcies, which is the number one cause of bankruptcies in the United States today. Uh, job mobility increases as people are less reliant on their employer for health care and they feel they have the ability to change jobs and not lose their health care and not have a gap in coverage. Um, but all these things are positive outcomes. Uh, however, they are extremely time dependent uh, and we don't know what that variable looks like now. It, these effects might show up in two years after the plan, show, uh, after the plan um, is put into place. Uh, they might show up 25 years after the plans are put into place. We just don't know how long it would take to really reap those external benefits. And thinking about the, the short-term pain and the long-term gain uh, is, is something Americans don't necessarily, don't necessarily do um, is weigh the long-term benefits. And I'll be curious to see as we get into the election cycle of how much of a winner this platform is, um, knowing all of the uncertainty in the healthcare market now and and how people feel about like very specific types of issues around high drug pricing, surprise billing, balance billing. I wonder, it, it'll be curious to see like how does that get framed up into topics that people actually feel today that maybe they can then associate with what these plans would do to address them. So uh, we know healthcare is an extremely important issue to voters. In fact, it's the number one issue for the 2020 election. I mean, during the midterm elections of 2018, 80% of voters said that healthcare was either extremely or very important. Um, it was the highest of any issue. And I think with so many candidates and so many potential Democratic plans and so many debates. <laughs> lots of debates. Lots of debates still out there. Healthcare is sure to be discussed at length. And I think the president has made it known that he is not going to attempt any sort of health care legislation until after the 2020 election. So the policy discussion will likely really be centered in on Democratic proposals around Medicare for all like ideas. And it'll be interesting to see what proposal or version of these proposals we've discussed today uh, eventually get embraced as part of the Democratic platform. Um, you know, this was just a little high-level view of what's going on. I think as we, we get more clarity into what the platform shapes up to be, we should definitely do a follow-up conversation on this when we have a little bit more detail around it. For sure. Yeah. And Perhaps um, by um, March of next year, there will only be 18 candidates in the race right. instead of 21. <laughs> right. We'll see. So it's time to wind up this episode and and go into our parting thought. And Katone, uh, Mike, I'm going to hand it over to you and let you get started on that. Great. So today, um, my parting thought is about a podcast series called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. Uh, it's put on by the BBC World Series. Um, they're about seven to ten minutes each, and they're just really fascinating tidbits about innovations uh, that Maybe maybe were innovations at the time, and you think about them, um, you know, hundreds of years removed or dozens of years removed, and they don't seem that innovative, uh, but they have actually made a huge impact uh, on on today's economy. And uh, there's one specific episode. Um, it's called Antibiotics. It's the title of the episode, uh, and it's really about the uh, the discovery of penicillin. Um, how it was sort of an accidental discovery, like we know a lot of um, really important innovations happen accidentally. 
um, and mold happened to be growing uh, on on a petri dish, and um, they they were able to culture that and use it to kill off infections. Um, it fascinating to me. They told they talked about the first person who was treated with penicillin, who had was a police officer who had cut his cheek gardening, um, just on a, on like a leaf or or a garden tool, cut his cheek gardening. Um, he died, so the penicillin didn't work. Uh, but just to think that before the introduction of penicillin, uh, a cut on your cheek could kill you. Right. Um, and that wasn't that was less than a hundred years ago. So it, it is pretty recent history um, that we've we've discovered these antibiotics. Uh, and then the episode also goes on to talk about um, antibiotic resistance and what what we might face in a post uh, antibiotic world. So it's really really a great episode, and I recommend I would recommend all fifty all fifty things that made the modern economy. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check this out. I hadn't heard about that podcast, so I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, For my parting thought, I'm going to stick with Medicare since I'm mildly obsessed with it right now. And there was a recent article in Modern Health that was entitled, CMS to Launch New Direct Contracting Pay Models in 2020. 2020 seems to be the year that everything everything hits. But um, the article really spoke to the continued efforts of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to uh, really try to pivot our health system out of a reimbursement model centered on fee-for-service and into a more value-driven model. Uh, The CMS Innovation Center is introducing new voluntary innovation models, and I use the word voluntary because they've been touting about mandatory models and now talking about more voluntary models, but they're calling this effort the CMS Primary Cares effort. It's an initiative that provides primary care practices with five new payment options, including three direct contracting models. All of the new model options link performance to payments to a varying degree. I thought this article provided some really good insight into what these models actually look like and their associated timelines. So check it out if you have an opportunity. That's great, Mindy. I think I'll add my parting thought. It has nothing to do with dogs, so I'm excited <laughs> about that. But there's a great um, article in Reuters uh, just this week around measles. I, I just have, you know, you can't turn on the news without seeing something about kind of these, um, what we thought were historic diseases, measles or afflictions, measles, mumps, and these outbreaks that have recently hit uh, the U.S. And I was wondering, well, since I was vaccinated, um, do I run a risk of getting this? And it's, in fact, a little scary. Um, the article is called U.S. Measles Outbreak Raises Questions About Immunity in Adults. Um, so it turns out that folks that have been immunized once or even twice as a child still run the risk of getting measles in this recent outbreak. Um, insofar as 10% of those infected in the re- recent outbreak of measles had already been vaccinated as children. These were adults. Um, and, I, and I went on to think, well, why is that? You know, and this, this article is fantastic in kind of distilling why that is. And the idea is that the CDC looks at some of these afflictions as a herd immunity. So once you have um, an entire population immune, it's very hard to get this disease unless you let, it, let these vaccinations lax. And um, once you do, it creates this kind of chain reaction where then even though 95 to 97% of the folks are immune, um, it really opens up the risk for folks that have been immune, that have had the doses of vaccinations as children, I think it's from 1963 to 1989, to be open for infection again. So it really speaks to kind of, you know, 
the longer term macro level effects of vaccinations and how when you let it lax, it could go. It's a great article. It's in Reuters, Simple Read um, by Julie Stunhausen. And I, I invite you all, it's pretty prescient to take a look at the article. So this concludes our High Five podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in to this episode. For links to resources discussed in this episode, to subscribe to this podcast, or connect with the Finamic team to help you with your initiatives, please visit us at Finamic.com. Thank you, and we look forward to empowering you with more information on the healthcare industry in our next cast. Have a great day.